0: Welcome to the Wisdom Rising podcast. I'm your host, Lama Sultrama Aleone. And my goal with this podcast is really to open your own wisdom, to have your own wisdom rising, either through the meditations that I lead or introduce you to, or to the people that I interview that bring wisdom with them in their own voice, in their own traditions. So we look forward to Raising our wisdom together on the Wisdom Rising podcast. And I'm so happy to share this with you. So I'm writing a memoir, and the name of that memoir is Places She Lives. And it was a book that I actually wrote a complete book and turned it in, sold it to Viking in 1992 when I was just, I think, 45 years old, something like that. And it was a big book already. A lot had happened. And then the following year, we found the land that became Tarland, And so I, I gave back that advance, and I took back the manuscript. And it just sat there while I created with lots of help from many people, including my beloved husband, David, who was such an amazing father figure there and really helped to give birth to and protect that place for the next years. (laughs) I didn't do anything with that manuscript and then recently pulled it out and started to look at it again. And I hadn't written much about the beginning of my life, a little bit, and a little bit touching on my grandparents. So recently I wrote a chapter particularly about my maternal grandparents that then triggered research into the whole history of Buddhism in America, particularly in New England and Boston, which is where they came from. So my genetic heritage is basically Boston. (laughs) Some New York some up as far north as Nova Scotia. But really, I had five ancestors on the Mayflower on my mother's side. Mayflower, if anybody doesn't know, was that first boat that came over to Plymouth. The Puritans on it. Five ancestors on that. And when I did my Ancestry.com DNA test, it was so boring. It was just Boston, England, Ireland, Scotland, a little bit of Swedish, some French, but that was it. And just this line that went between England, basically, and Boston area, New England. And so, I had hoped for something a little more exotic, a little more interesting that would be in there. There was something like 1% Japanese American, uh, something like that, but uh, mostly it was, that's what it was. And so, I grew up in that world, in New England. Both my maternal grandparents were PhDs from Harvard Radcliffe in in philosophy. They were both philosophy students, and then my grandfather taught at Harvard philosophy. And my grandmother was the fifth woman to get her PhD from what was then Radcliffe, which has now been incorporated, into Harvard. Uh, Harvard would not allow women, and so they formed a college, sort of begrudgingly. And then the professors had to give the exact same lecture that they gave to the men to the women, because they didn't believe that women and men could be in the same class together. The president of Harvard at the time, whose name was William Elliott, the time of my grandmother, said the only reason for a woman to get a higher education was if it would make the home more beautiful. It's the only reason. And he was very against women getting educated, higher education. So my grandmother, her story was that her father, who uh, was a businessman, sort of middle-class businessman from Roxbury, which was a suburb of Boston, still is. He had lost his father to a heart condition in, uh, at, at, at a young age. He was 16 years old, and he was pulled out of high school. He wanted to become a lawyer. He was pulled out, and he had to start working to support his family. And that's what he did the whole rest of his life. He gradually moved up in, in the company that he had started in, in at the age of 16, but really never accomplished what he wanted to accomplish because he didn't finish his education. He encouraged my grandmother, who was the oldest of four. She wanted to go to college, and he encouraged her but asked that she go to a college that was close enough to home that she could come back on weekends. And so she ended up going to Wellesley College, which is a suburb of Boston, a wonderful women's college that had been formed a a short time before her, when she went there. She was born in 1876. And so she went to Wellesley, and then while she was at Wellesley, her father died. And then her brother contracted typhoid fever and almost died. And her mother had a heart condition also. So one thing I discovered in this research is there's a lot of heart conditions in my genetic history. So she left Wellesley in her sophomore year. And usually when that happened, women didn't end up going back. They would get married or something would happen and they would never finish. But she really wanted to go back And I think in a way carrying the torch for her father, she did return. She finished her BA and then followed that with a masters at Wellesley in philosophy. And then she began to be invited to attend lectures at Harvard, Harvard Radcliffe and was invited into the graduate program there and moved in with a professor's family in Cambridge and began to do graduate studies at Radcliffe. She studied philosophy, and apparently she was very good, and her professors were really impressed by her. Royce, Josiah Royce, was her main professor for her thesis, and he raved about her her thesis. What's interesting here is that Royce studied Buddhism, her main professor studied Buddhism. So this goes back to the fact that it was this grandmother who gave me my first book of Buddhism when I was only 15 years old, and it was just one year before she passed away. Because she got her education and became a professor and married late, considered to be very late, the age of 34, and then had three girls and my mother was the youngest. My grandmother was always kind of old. <laughs> I was like, you know, experienced her as being old. And, and she was fairly old by the time we came along because my mother also got a graduate degree and then married and had children. So my grandmother was at Harvard with Royce and Royce was interested enough in Buddhism to learn Sanskrit and read it in the original. She was also at Harvard with William James, who many of you may have read, very popular book in many colleges called The Varieties of Religious Experience. So James was there. He also was interested in Buddhism. And also another one of her professors, whose name was William Palmer, he was also interested in Buddhism. So I didn't know this until this recent research that she was exposed to Buddhist thinking through her philosophy professors at Harvard. The other interesting thing that I discovered is she was friends with Cahil Gilbran, who was the author of The Prophet, and he actually drew a portrait of her, which we have in, I believe it was 1908, she got her PhD in 1906. So it would have been after that. So she was traveling in those circles in Boston of people who were interested in quantum physics, in abstract mathematics, which she later taught. She, she left teaching when she started having children. She married in 1910. My mother was born in 1915. So in that first five years, she had three daughters and stopped teaching, even though when they got married, there was talk that, oh, she'll continue, she'll keep teaching, uh, which her professors really wanted her to do, but she ended up not doing that. She studied Buddhism in, in some form. I don't know to what extent she was interested in it, but enough to give me a book, a Buddhism, which was called Zen Telegrams. It was a little brushstroke paintings and kind of haikus by somebody named Paul Reps. She gave that to me when I was 15, and it was the year before she she passed away. The way she passed away was she had a headache, and she drove herself to the doctor's office, always independent woman, drove herself there, and she passed out in the doctor's office from a stroke, and never regained consciousness. It was 1963, so she lived from 1876 to 1963. She met my grandfather in the context of studying philosophy and particularly in these meetings that would happen in the home of William James and also in the home of Josiah Royce, her professor, of a kind of philosophical group. And my grandfather went to those meetings and she was there too. And she was the only woman in all these meetings. She was the only woman in the philosophy department. When I did my family lineage demons and family lineage ally map, do with the Feeding Your Demons and copula Training, I realized that my grandmother had had this demon of patriarchy that she had had to deal with in her education, not being able to get a book out of the library by herself. She had to have a male student go into the Harvard Library, which was, of course, much better equipped than the Radcliffe Library, to get books. My grandmother met my grandfather there. There's evidence that they first were aware of each other in 1903, so before her PhD. And my grandfather had something happen, which was quite interesting. When he was 23 in that year of of 1903, he came down with tuberculosis and he was given three months to live by his doctor. He said to his mother, if I'm going to die, I want to go into the country and live as fully as possible before I die, and so they went way up to the north of New Hampshire, and they purchased a small house that didn't have running water. His father had died already quite a long time before, so it was just him and his mother, and didn't have running water. It didn't have electricity, of course, and they had a garden. They were friends with farmers, and they just lived there. They had a goat and milked the goat for milk and lived there in a very nature-oriented way. As he began to gain strength, he climbed mountains around there, not huge mountains, but he was exercising. And gradually he got better and better. And when they returned to Boston and he went back to the doctor, healthy, the doctor couldn't believe it. He didn't lose one of his lungs. He only had one lung, lived to be 92 years old. But the doctor used the example of what he had done, and it became one of the primary case studies that created that whole sanitarium system of when somebody has TB, take them up to a higher altitude and give them really clean air and good food, and maybe they'll get better. And that was the main treatment for TB, which was called consumption at that time. And so during that time when he was up there, one of his friends wrote him a letter and said, "Francis Rumanier, which was her name, sends her regards and aspirations for your quick recovery. And not exactly those words, but something like that. And so that's the first time there's evidence of them knowing each other, but it wasn't until really 1910 that, they became close and then they married very quickly. The first evidence of their family being aware of their relationship was in around February of 1910 and they were married in June of that year. She was teaching at Smith at that time and he at Harvard and they were going back and forth seeing each other a lot and then married at that time and there's some beautiful things that they wrote to each other, including one thing my grandmother said, which is Arthur, that was his name, Arthur Stone, doing, Arthur, you, you must know how deeply I love you to let go of all this. And what she meant was her teaching. I have a book that my mother created of her letters and their letters back and forth and other people's letters to them, and also about her family. And so... Yes, that was my grandmother. So this this whole discovery triggered a discovery of further back into the roots of Buddhism in America. I suddenly was like, well, where, who else was doing this? And when did it actually start? It went back, as far as I can tell, to the time of the transcendentalists in New England. And they were around like 1820 to probably 1860. And they grew out of the Unitarian Church. There was a friendship between two women, which I wasn't aware of in this group, which had these threads that really unified in the life of my grandmother. So normally when we talk about the transcendentalists, we talk about Emerson and Thoreau. And they were very important in that movement. Um, There was also Louisa May Alcott's father, who was an educator in that movement, and others. But there were these two women that I found very interesting. And one was named Elizabeth Peabody. And she had a bookstore in Boston, on West Street, in her home, and she was also an educator and began the first kindergartens in the United States, inspired by German kindergarten. There weren't kindergartens before that. Children didn't go to school until they were six, seven years old. And so there was no preschool or anything like that. So she began the first kindergartens, which then continued and was established as a regular thing in American education after her. But she also was really interesting because she translated the first sutra into English. And it was the Lotus Sutra. She translated it from the French and published it in this magazine that Thoreau and Emerson edited. Actually, first it was Margaret Fuller who edited it. And I'm going to talk about her in a minute. So Elizabeth Peabody, a woman, was the translator Uh, of the first sutra translated into English in the United States, in Boston. And she also was a transcendentalist. Very interesting, if you want to look her up, I suggest you do. So it was her, and then her friend was named Margaret Fuller. And Margaret Fuller was a really amazing woman. She was educated first by her father, and really highly educated by him. Remember, there's no colleges for women at that time. So he educated her, and then she continued reading and studying. And she became someone who was considered, by men and women, to be the most well-read person in New England at that time, Margaret Fuller. She ended up becoming very interested in women's rights and women's education. And she was the first woman to be given access to that Harvard library that even my grandmother wasn't. So this was way before that. She passed away in 1850, and I believe she was born in 1820. So she had a short life. And what happened was that she had that education, she became the editor of the Dial magazine, which was the transcendentalists' magazine. And by the way, who were the Transcendentalists? Well, they came out of the Unitarian Universalist movement, but they were more, I would say, mystical. And they had a big connection with nature. And they believed that nature was the expression of the divine, of God. And that's what Thoreau and Emerson were part of and why Thoreau did what he did. So Margaret Fuller and Elizabeth Peabody were friends. And what happened was Margaret Fuller created something called conversations that were held at the bookstore that Elizabeth Peabody had started. And these were conversations with women, just only women, about the bigger questions, like, what am I here to do? Who am I independent of my husband, my family, of being a mother, et cetera? And they studied in these conversations, or yeah, it was really study, and it was an attempt to give women a higher education. And so they studied the arts, they studied philosophy, they studied history, and so on in these conversations. And Margaret Fuller wrote a book called The 19th Century Woman, or The Woman of the 19th Century. And it became a seed text for feminist thought much later with Susan B. Anthony in the middle of the 1800s, who then was really uh, very active in trying to get women the vote and trying to get Women higher education in the Temperance Act. The Temperance Act was to try to have women be able to divorce their husbands and get custody of their children if their husbands were alcoholics and were abusing them. Because the way the law was, the men could be total drunks, abusive, and still if the woman divorced them. Often she wouldn't get custody of her own children. He would have them. And she had no money and no power. So she, Susan B. Anthony worked against that. And this influence of Margaret Fuller went on into feminist thought. And in a way, those meetings were the first women's consciousness-raising groups that when when I was in my early 20s were the way that feminist thought was being spread were in these women's groups, just groups of women who met maybe once a week just to talk to each other. So just talking to each other about something more meaningful than what they were sewing, or you know, their children or whatever. Talking about themselves and what was happening in their lives. There's Elizabeth Peabody and Margaret Fuller. So Margaret Fuller is organizing these conversations at Elizabeth Peabody's bookstore. And Elizabeth Peabody is translating Buddhism. So for me, this was so interesting to think that going back, so my my grandmother, remember, is born in 1876. This is earlier in that same century. These two women come together and they were editing the dial, this magazine that was really this sort of central point for the thinking of the transcendentalists. And that sutra was published in it. And the interesting thing is there was a book called When the Swans Came to the Lake about the history of American Buddhism uh, written by Rick Field, who talks about this sutra and his translation, his publication in the dial. But he says that it was Thoreau that translated it. So once again, we have this history being rewritten and women written out of it. And it wasn't, and that's been corrected now. But if you read that book, it says that. I want to talk a little bit more about Thoreau and Emerson because they're really interesting and to get an idea about what they were thinking and 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 how Buddhist she was. We don't know how Buddhist my grandmother was, but she was certainly exposed to it. Yeah, I've written a whole chapter about my grandmother. It's really the um, Thoreau that I got really interested in because he really was meditating. And he went into the forest, essentially, built this cabin, I think it was 10 by 15 feet. And Emerson was his patron. And what Thoreau wanted to do was to get away from people and basically meditate. And there's evidence in his writing that he really was meditating. I didn't realize this until probably about 2014 I was in Boston uh, visiting a friend and we walked around Walden Pond where he lived and wrote and he he had the Dharmapada there in his retreat cabin because they were selling it in the bookstore there they have a little gift store on the on the highway uh, near Walden Pond that's about... Thoreau and everything. And they had the Dharmapada, which is sort of the key base root Buddhist text. And I said, why do you have this book? And and she said, it was in Thoreau's cabin. And so we have it. And so he would go and he would sit, being integrating with nature, holding his mind in the present moment, and being, and he said sometimes he would pass the whole morning like that and not realize that he had been sitting there in his doorway until the sun came in from the western window of his house, and then he realized how long he'd been there. Really, it was Thoreau who was inspired by the Bhagavad Gita, the, the core Hindu text, and the Dharmapada, and other writings to go and to live like a yogi. And he actually called himself a yogi. And so maybe next time I will talk more about Thoreau and read some of quotes from his meditations and talk more about what actually happened there in New England. But isn't that interesting that there is a whole route of American Buddhism in, in Boston? And I haven't included all the other roots around the United States of Buddhism in New York and so on, because I was actually tracking this family connection to it in my research, but there was. And a lot of connection through Japan, also in Boston, which maybe I'll talk about as well, and the Japanese aesthetic. So for now, I think that's, I'll leave you with that. So what what the impact this has had on me is to realize oh, I actually have a family lineage of Buddhism, not just Tibetan. I've always had this feeling like, why was I born there? And when I have this, such a karmic link with Tibet. And then I realized in doing this research, I couldn't have been born in a better situation in the United States. And it would have been better to be born in the United States because of what happened in Tibet right after and really at the time of my birth the Chinese invasion. So I was actually born into an American Buddhist lineage, to some extent anyway, and had that exposure at a young age. And I'll also connect some of the quotes of Thoreau with my early meditation experiences. So I hope you've enjoyed this little... I haven't shared this until now, but I haven't t- spoken about this publicly. So let let us know if this interests you. So. I think it's time for us to close and sending you all lots of love. Thank you, everyone, for being with us for this Wisdom Rising podcast. May it benefit all beings. And I'd like to take a moment to thank the production team of Wisdom Rising and also to let you know that if you would like further information on my work or the associated people who work with Tara Mandala, you can reach out to the Tara Mandala website, T-A-R-A-M-A-N-D-A-L-A dot O-R-G. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe.